0: I'm Alec Baldwin, and you are listening to
1: Mission Daily, selected as Best of 2018 by Apple. Mission Daily is the number one podcast for accelerated learning.
0: Hey, everyone. This is producer Rachel Kanya, And on today's episode, Stephanie sits down with Austin Craig, one of the newest members of the mission team. Stephanie and Austin dive into some fun stories, like when Austin and his new wife at the time, Becky, lived off of Bitcoin for their first 101 days of marriage. Austin also dives into how he views the hype cycles of the crypto world and tells about how enthusiastic many people are about the technology as a means of liberating people from oppressive institutions. But, he warns, the very same technology can also be used as a means of surveillance and repression and much more. Stay tuned for more from Austin Craig, the newest member of the mission team. Austin, thanks for hopping on the mic and joining me. How's it going?
1: It's going really well, Steph. Thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah, for anyone who doesn't know, this is Austin Craig. He is now a producer with The Mission. How's it feel?
1: It feels great. You know, I I connected with you guys on Twitter of all places, and I didn't think we would be working together. That wasn't what I was going for, but I'm so happy it happened because what a great group of people and what great topics. And I'm thrilled to be part of what we're doing here.
0: Yeah, same. We're so happy to have you. And it worked out perfectly because when we we're talking about our crypto week that we had last week and the upcoming week, it was an easy way for me to boot chat off the mic because I'm like, hey, Austin, there's a lot more about crypto and Bitcoin and all that than you do. So let's have them on. And what I really want to kind of jump into first is your really fun story, how you made a documentary about your 100 days living on Bitcoin with your new wife at the time. So can you give the audience a little bit of background, stories, all that around, what was it like living on Bitcoin for 100 days and yeah, the craziest stuff that happened throughout?
1: Yeah, I'll give, I'll give a quick rundown of a couple stories. So in 2013, beginning of the year, Bitcoin really rallied and it went to what at that time was a crazy high price of $120, just totally mind blowing in 2013. And I wanted to get involved, but I'm not a cryptographer or a regulator or an economist. I'm just somebody who's interested in those things. My career background is in Filmmaking and media production. And so a friend suggested that I could make a film about Bitcoin and live on Bitcoin. I was engaged at the time. And the idea of doing this for the first three months of married life was proposed, which is crazy, but that's kind of what makes it interesting too, right? So I put this in front of my ever-adventurous fiance, now wife, and she miraculously agreed. And we lived on nothing but Bitcoin for all expenses for the first, ultimately, 100 days of our post-honeymoon married life. From the moment we stepped off the plane from our honeymoon, it was Bitcoin for everything. And uh, we knew it was going to be hard, but we didn't know how it was going to be hard. A lot of people thought, and even we thought, it might be hard to buy food. A lot of people asked, are you going to starve to death living on Bitcoin? And thankfully, that did not happen. Food, it turned out, was one of the easiest things to buy. When you go to a restaurant or you go to a store that sells primarily food, a lot of the time, the person at the counter is the business owner. They're the decision maker. And if they want to take some radically new form of payment, all, they, all you have to do is talk to the person at the register and they can say yes. What proved to be the hardest thing to buy was gas for our car. There aren't very many mom-and-pop oil companies uh, and so we would put this question in front of somebody at the gas station. And more often than not, they didn't even want to have the conversation, right? They didn't want to hear about it. They didn't want to talk about it. It was like, I don't get paid enough for this. And we did find a, a gas station where the person behind the counter was a crypto enthusiast. And he he messaged us. He found us and told us, I know I'm not right in your neighborhood. We're 60 minutes away from you, but please come to my gas station. I will accept Bitcoin as a payment. So for the first few weeks of living on Bitcoin, we drove like an hour north of our house in the middle of nowhere, right by the Salt Flats. I live in Utah, and this was near the airport, past out out near the Salt Flats, where they do these uh, land speed records because it's this dry, flat, nothing wilderness. And we would buy gas from this guy um, and fill up as many gas cans as we could. Thankfully, we found another place that was closer to our home within a few weeks, but it was stuff like that. We never could have anticipated those challenges. And that was kind oh of gosh. the that was the fun of the experiment, seeing what what worked, what didn't, what was hard, what was easy, what was what it was really like in use.
0: That's crazy. And you and your wife Becky are still together, doing well. We yes, so,
1: thankfully. That would that's have been amazing. a sad ending to the movie.
0: <laughs> oh my gosh, that would have been so sad. And did were you the one filming it the whole time or How are you capturing the experience?
1: We hired a film crew. So we did a Kickstarter. We raised enough money to hire a production crew who was following us for most of the experience. Now, three months is a long time to be filming somebody's life. So they weren't with us 24-7. But anytime we were going to be doing something, trying to buy something, really, whether it was going to the farmer's market or going to a grocery store and ultimately trying to travel, driving across the country, flying to Europe, flying to Asia, which we ultimately did, the film crew came with us and documented our journey. It was kind of funny because there were a couple moments when we really were having a hard time. Like, we were in Stockholm, Sweden, and we could not find a place to sell us food. We were looking all over the place. And the film crew was, like, taking their lunch break, you know? They could go buy stuff just (laughs) fine. But Becky and I had a few snacks from the plane that we had brought with us. Funny instances like that where it doesn't really reflect on screen, as is often the case with documentaries the making of the film is almost as interesting as the film itself. Yep. So lots of behind the scenes, funny instances like that.
0: Oh, man, that is insane. They should have turned the camera around and shown like, here's what we're doing. And then gone to your and Becky's faces <laughs> being like, Maybe and I, they're struggling yeah, still.
1: I might need to, to recut it or update it for 2019 and add a few more scenes in like that.
0: Yeah, really. So that's amazing. So that was, how, how long ago was that? Was that in 2013?
1: 2013. It was really early in Bitcoin, probably too early. Not many people had heard of it then.
0: Yeah. And so were you one of the, like when you heard about it, were you just early at, you know, an early adopter of wanting to try it out and buying some coins and all that?
1: Yeah, I'd I'd heard of it. I was really excited and interested. I'm somebody who's just casually interested in economics, markets, politics, and and Bitcoin, and, and obviously technology. I'm very interested in technology. Bitcoin impacts all of these areas, it overlaps. It's this bizarre stack of technologies and methods that has deep implications on on philosophy, on governance, on individual autonomy. You know what I saw after a couple years because I got I got interested and involved as early as twenty eleven. But after a couple years, it was clear to me that a this was not going away, and b it, it ultimately poses something of an existential threat to a lot of legacy institutions. Mm-hmm. Bitcoin itself was created, the white paper, the technical paper that was published, that, that kind of precipitated the invention of Bitcoin, was published as a direct response to the 2008 financial collapse. And the inventor of Bitcoin specifically referenced these institutions that should have been better stewards of people's money. Mm-hmm. And they just proved that they were not in many ways. And nobody really paid for that. Nobody, nobody went to prison. No institutions uh, were punished Uh, You know, some of them went out of business, Lehman Brothers, but the inventor of Bitcoin saw this and he said, there's got to be a better way. And he invented, with a lot of new technologies, a way to do money that was radically different and theoretically much more self-controlled, much more autonomous for the end user.
0: Got it. Yep. So do you think, you know, the financial crisis is probably just a faint memory for a lot of people now? And now, you know, we're in what feels like a pretty good state, like inflation's low, people are you know, having a great time, markets are up. Do you think that that's inhibiting crypto and, you know, blockchain and all that from moving forward at a quicker quicker pace? Because we've talked about this in the past, how a lot of other foreign markets are sometimes ahead of us because they didn't have certain systems in place already. So they didn't know or have anything that was good enough. And they just, I think you called it like the leapfrog effect where they just moved to the newest and the latest thing. Whereas right now we're in a place where it feels good enough and there's not a lot of urgency to move forward. How do you feel like, you know, we can get past that?
1: Yeah, that's a good point. And I think you're right. I think we are in a place, uh, you know, I, like I said, I live in Utah. I think mission is in San Francisco where we're in a very developed country with a lot of solutions for people who want to manage their finances. We are banked, right? We have access to financial infrastructure that while often annoying, it works, you know, Even this morning, I tweeted about how frustrating it was to use PayPal because I think they deliberately obscure the withdrawal process. I always have money sitting in there that it's not clear that I actually have money until like you click th- three layers deep and see like, oh, I have a balance that I've it's been sitting here forever that I forgot was here and they didn't ever inform me of it anyway.
0: Yeah. That feels like my toll thing. You know the the little toll meters, I have one for DC, I have one for San Francisco and it just loads a balance on there and I'm like I don't know how much I have or especially the one in DC. I don't even know what happened to that one. It's just it's chilling in the universe somewhere I guess.
1: Right. There there are all kinds of financial services available to us, but they're essentially black boxes. We don't know how they work. We have no real control over how they work. We can't customize or optimize them for our benefit. But we continue to use what we have because it, in essence, works. In regions that don't have those solutions, think about a rural farmer in Afghanistan, say, to use an extreme example. This is somebody who Maybe they have some private property, but there is no paper trail. There is no institution recording their ownership or where those assets came from. And frankly, it's, an, it's, a, it's an, a region riddled with instability, with violence, with political upheaval. It would be very difficult to rely on institutions in that setting to secure your property, your rights, uh, mm. and even to secure information, right? To, to have a paper deed that may very well get destroyed in an unstable setting. But if it's on the blockchain and there are millions of cl- copies of this blockchain around the world, it's going to be very hard to refute that claim, right? When somebody has information recorded on the blockchain, then everybody has access to that information. Mm-hmm. It's this incredible mechanism to create veracity, to create trust, where your claims can be verified countless times over in a way that nobody can refute, even amongst strangers, right? Previously, you had to rely on a third party. Now you can essentially do it through this trusted network that is virtually unfalsifiable.
0: Yep. Yeah. When blockchain and Bitcoin first came out, I was working at Fannie Mae in DC, and I just saw so many opportunities for its usage, especially around housing, just because I would see all these processes that The consumer was paying a lot of money for someone else to do, whether it was verifying the ownership of land or anything around all the different paperwork you have to do when you want to buy a house and get a loan for it. And I was like, man, blockchain could be perfect for this. But at the time, people kind of thought I was crazy. I actually remember the person I was working for thought I was legit crazy talking about this, that we should look into this. I think it could make the processes much more efficient. But how do you view going from where we are? I mean, it feels like Bitcoin and the whole crypto industry is going through a lot of these hype cycles. So how do you view where we're at today and where we're going over the next like 10, 20 years?
1: Yeah, this hype cycle idea is, pretty pervasive in technology. Anybody who's dealt with a new technology or observed a new technology coming into the mainstream will have seen this phenomenon before, where something first is invented, first gets uh, out there in in, in a minor way, you know, amongst early adopters, amongst technologists. And those people are excited about it, but most people haven't heard of it. Most people aren't using it. And slowly it edges its way out, more and more adoption, more and more people using it until it reaches say, a fever pitch where where everybody's heard of it and everybody is aware of the potential implications that this really could be used in so many different ways, in so many different places to to improve people's lives, to overcome problems. And there is this exuberance that overtakes the marketplace. And then that exuberance crashes. That exuberance drops off when people realize that it's going to take many years for these technologies to deliver on those promises. And the fact is that, maybe not all of those ideas will come to fruition. Maybe this technology, say virtual reality or AI or general fintech, maybe those things won't change every aspect of our life like we thought they might in the most optimistic high point of excitement. Maybe they'll change some things in a really great way and it will take years to get there. So we go from this point of super high exuberance to this low point of disillusionment And then it slowly grows from there. Crypto, Bitcoin, blockchain technology, I'm using all of these terms. They're slightly different things, but they're very related. The crypto space has definitely experienced this. What's interesting and what sets it apart from other technologies is it's experienced this numerous times. I have a personal theory on this because Bitcoin and cryptos are all so precisely quantified in their value. What you get is a feedback loop. People get really excited about it. The price goes way up. And then it crashes. You f- you get this disillusionment where people realize it's going to take a long time to actually deliver on any of this promise or value. But then it happens over again at n- many times more the scale, so 10 times bigger. And if you look back through the history of Bitcoin or cryptocurrency I- in whole, you can see this happen again and again and again and again. It happened at the end of 2017. It happened at the end of 2013, beginning of 2014. It happened in spring 2013. It happened before then, where it went from a penny to a quarter and then back down again. And then from a few cents to a dollar and then back down again, all the way up to where it is now at $8,501 presently. As I look at the little widget on my laptop, you can tell exactly how much it is. And that causes this strange feedback feedback loop that I don't really see anywhere else.
0: Yep. And how long do you think this is going to go on with the you know, the multiple cycles. I mean, I always like to think about it that, you know, the internet when it was 10 years old was in 1989. So like, how did that feel in 1989 or so somewhere around there? And Bitcoin's only 10 years old as well. So how much longer do we think until it potentially could become more mainstream, um, actually used by consumers? I mean, I feel like the user interface is a lot of the issue right now is like, how do I buy a Bitcoin? What does it mean to buy one or a portion of it? How do I buy other coins? How can I actually use it? It feels like there's a lot of things that are holding it up right now. So, how do you see that evolving over the next few years or decade or longer?
1: Right. You make a good comparison. The internet, when it was 10 years old, that was mid 80s. A lot of people will compare where crypto is right now to where the internet was in the mid-90s. They'll say that it's something that you've heard of, and it's interesting, but you really don't know what it's good for, if you can rely on it, if you can do meaningful work on there, why you should need it. Uh, but flash forward 20 or 30 years, and it's indispensable to everyday life. I would, I would definitely agree that that Bitcoin is on that same trajectory. I don't, I don't know if crypto and Bitcoin are in the mid '90s, like the internet was, and in, you know, in the mid '90s, or if it's even earlier than that, we mm-hmm. may be in the internet of the '80s or earlier. Uh, Joey Ito, the, the the head of the MIT Media Lab, he thinks we're we're very much in like the '80s of the development of cryptocurrency. That it's mm-hmm. still going to be even decades out before it reaches full saturation before it reaches full utility in all of these different aspects of our lives. So I think there's a ton of growth still. And a lot, I hear a lot of people say like, oh, I missed out on the opportunity. And no matter where we are, whether it's the 90s, or the 80s, you certainly haven't missed out on the opportunity because the reality is most people still don't understand it, still don't use it, still don't have it, still don't understand what it's good for. There's incredible growth opportunity here, whether it's five years or 10 years or 25 years. There's a huge opportunity. And I'm just kind of like, Not placing bets on when it will reach full fruition, just that it eventually will.
0: Yep, Yeah. What I think um, holds a lot of people back is the one to one ratio of like, well, if I can't buy one Bitcoin, then what's the point? And I think they're not thinking kind of like, well, when it's used by a lot more people, a fraction of a Bitcoin is going to be worth, you know, enough to make sense. Maybe you only need like 0.00, whatever, but it's really hard for people to get past that concept of a dollar. And like, right. you know, if I can't get one, what's the point? Because it's like kind of like $1. I think that holds a lot of people up from even like thinking about buying it is because of the price point surrounding one and not thinking fractionally.
1: Yeah, it's, it's funny because it's a simple question of where you put that decimal point. There's, you know, we say one Bitcoin, but actually a Bitcoin is subdivisible down to, I think, eight decimal places. So if you go zero, 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 one, that unit has a name. It's called a satoshi. It's named after the person who wrote the Bitcoin white paper, the technical paper from which this was all invented. So you don't have to have one Bitcoin. You can have a thousand satoshis, which, is, which itself is actually a very small amount of money. It's like a, a cent, a few cents. Yep. You can buy in any amount, small or large, that you want to. You don't have to own a whole Bitcoin. And it's really just this funny linguistic challenge. It's not a technical one at all.
0: Yeah, so definitely agree. How do you think about... So the whole reason, I think, why people love this in the early days, and I think you even mentioned this, was because of the anonymous factor. And uh, what it, I think you were talking about the financial liberation. And give me a little more background on the early people who were really excited about crypto and maybe why that's changing a bit. Because I think I read that the FBI, like now 10%, only 10%, which people thought was a lot more of the activity on the blockchain or within Bitcoin is illegal and that's because now the government maybe can actually look into who's doing these transactions and track it down. So how do you view like how it started, where people were very excited about things being anonymous to now? It seems like there's a way to kind of see who's doing which transactions. Is that accurate?
1: Yeah, the the early history of Bitcoin, if you heard about it anytime in the last few years, you probably heard it mentioned in conjunction with illicit business with a black market. People were buying drugs or anything online using Bitcoin. And in the early days of Bitcoin, people thought it was anonymous. Here's this technology where I can send value to a stranger and they know it'll, it'll arrive and, and I know it will get sent, but we don't have to know each other. We don't have to have, you know, show our IDs and give our real world information. Um, so that lets black market operators send and receive things online. But Bitcoin is also an incredible tracking technology. Every single transaction ever conducted is on the blockchain, even today. Transactions from 10 years ago. You can go look at exactly what was sent and when and from where to where. The challenge is in taking that information and attaching it to a real world identity, which federal authorities are getting very good at. <laughs> so fundamentally, it's not anonymous it's what I would call pseudo-anonymous. It's as anonymous as you, as you would like it to be, right? You can obscure that information from your real-world identity, or you can attach it to your real-world identity and have absolutely everything tracked. This technology can be used for individual liberation, right? Individual sovereignty, individual freedom, or surveillance, tracking, and even oppression. The Chinese government is very interested in blockchain technology, not because it's going to free people, but because it is a great way to track their behavior, to track their transactions. Just like any tool, it can be used how you want it to be used. There might be, there might be some biases one way or another, but Bitcoin is uniquely, has a dual personality almost. It is anonymous if you really want it to be and you know how to do that. It is also the least anonymous thing in the world if you just use it without thinking about that.
0: Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So I think I remember you mentioned that maybe it was when you were doing your Bitcoin documentary that you knew people who went to jail, I think in your hometown, right? If you can give yeah, a little actually, background on that.
1: And and honestly, this would have been a great angle on my documentary, but I missed it. Ow. when I know, I know. I should have gotten way in more to the black yeah. market. Too I bad like, I didn't out- get...
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, you should have been like an undercover agent, like trying yeah. to find your way into the black market. I Just guess kidding, round do two, <laughs> when,
1: when we do another version of these, I'll get arrested for the sake of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: but like so not th- too long, because like we still need you to work here. So
1: <laughs> yeah, good idea. I'll I'll try to keep the job. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Silk Road. Silk Road was the earliest marketplace that people knew about that was buy you could buy and sell using Bitcoin. Almost all illicit activity on there drugs, and anything else you can imagine. When Silk Road was busted in the fall of 2013, the the kingpin, the ringleader, was a guy in the Bay Area, a guy in his latter 20s, who had set it up as this open marketplace, and the feds arrested him. But there were other people who were identified to be part of this organization. One of them lived in a very rural part of Utah, not far from where I am. He's probably 25 minutes from my house. And this came out while I was making the documentary. And it's just fascinating that these people from, you know, San Francisco to Utah, geologically or geographically, not that far from each other, but culturally kind of worlds apart. Mm -hmm. Um, The Bay Area, the Center for Innovation, and uh, rapidly adopting new ideas, new networks, new things, and then Utah, this conservative bastion in the Rocky Mountains, But these people connected with each other because of their interest in Bitcoin and because of their ideological alignment on it being a completely open marketplace. There was another guy I knew who we did interview in the documentary named Charlie Schrem. Charlie is a big name in the Bitcoin world, has been around for a long time. He started an exchange where you could buy and sell Bitcoin very early on, which was a hard thing to do. I -hmm. learned about Bitcoin in 2010, 2011, but I didn't buy for a couple of years because frankly, it was pretty tough to get your hands on some unless you were very technically capable. It was hard to figure out. Charlie set up a network or a website where you could do that, buy and sell. But in order to do that, he had to interface with banks, right? You were trying to ch- trade your American dollars for Bitcoin. To do that, he needed a banking partner. Uh, and there are all kinds of regulations and and hurdles you got to jump through. And we interviewed him about the difficulties in setting that up. And he talked about the regulations that he was having a hard time meeting and 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 being able to comply with, not not out of malicious intent, just they were kind of onerous rules for him. Well, not that long after we interviewed him, he ended up getting arrested and accused of money laundering for not obeying these difficult regulations. He went to prison for a while. I, I saw some conferences that he attended virtually because he was under house arrest for a while. Oh, no. Um, but this, you know, Charlie is still... He's out of prison now. He is in the crypto space and still building out tools and sites that people can engage with crypto in their normal everyday life with for for buying normal consumer goods for business, etc. There's been a lot of that stuff going on just because it's such a gray area. People are trying to figure out what works, what doesn't, what's legal, what's not because it's undefined.
0: Yep. Yeah, I think that's how I mean, it definitely feels when it comes to the regulations and the taxes. I was talking to Laura Shin about this when I was interviewing her. And, you know, she did a whole episode on taxes because, you know, that first year, even the first like five years, like no one knew, even up until now, no one really, you know, has like a clear understanding. Maybe today they do. Of like, what do you do tax wise? What does it mean to if you like, you know, take a Bitcoin, you change it to Ethereum, then you move it over to Stellar? Like, how do you know what tax implications come with all those transactions? It's very tricky. And for someone, you know, to get in trouble when it comes to that kind of stuff or, you know, regulations that are probably very hard to understand feels a little unfair in a new industry like this where people are trying to figure it out. Unless you're, you know, apparently doing something illegal and you know it and you just keep doing it. That's a whole different story. But
1: yeah. Yeah, I think there's a lot of opportunity here for people to make, to build that bridge and make it easier, right? Mm-hmm. For, for those who want to engage with this new system, this new technology, and also comply clearly with the laws. Yeah, that's a That's a huge pain point that I think is an opening for startups to figure out and to streamline.
0: Yep. Yeah, I agree. So the one thing that I always hear about that's kind of holding, at least from the outside perspective of like, what is holding crypto and, you know, Bitcoin and all that up is the computing power it takes to mine a new Bitcoin. So how do you view, because a lot of people, you know, say like it takes, if you compare it to maybe how many like planes when they're flying from, you know, transatlantically or whatever, it's this much Bitcoin. And they always like compare it to these different assets and areas to kind of show like how much of a strain it is on the environment by mining for these coins. How do you view where we're at today and is that actually a problem or is that going to go away, you know, in the next 10 years? Because it kind of reminds me, and I know we've talked about this before, about how AI was in the 70s. Like a lot of the algorithms that we're using today are the same ones that we had back in the 70s, but we just didn't have the computing power to actually make them come to life. So is that kind of where we're at now in the crypto space and it's just like a short term problem or can it get solved?
1: So you bring up a really interesting question, and I think there are a lot of different trend lines involved in answering that question. The demands of the network continue to go up as more and more people adopt and use Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies, right? So that line is up. But the hardware used, the computers used to mine Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies are always getting more efficient. So that's a way that that trend line is essentially going down. They use less and less power to accomplish the same kind of thing. And at the same time, the technologies themselves, Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies, can be re-engineered, right? This is a living technology. It's not a thing set in stone. The code base is always being added to and changed. And there are competing cryptocurrencies. This is a marketplace of currencies. And it may sound strange if we don't Uh, if we don't think about currency as an invention or as a technology, but it is. It doesn't exist in nature. It's something that we invented to accomplish a job. And it can be engineered to do the job better in certain ways. So with these competing currencies, I think we'll find that ultimately, uh, the, the better currencies will end up on top, the ones that offer real utility, real solutions, without creating more problems along the way. The other aspect of this that I would consider is... Bitcoin is providing a service. Cryptos are providing a service. Financial services primarily. And if we compare that to the way we solve financial problems now, how much energy does that use, right? Mm -hmm. We're relying on Visa and MasterCard and Discover and all of these credit cards. We're relying on PayPal and Bank of America. We're relying on Fannie and Freddie. We're relying on a massive financial infrastructure, not just of electronic systems, but physical buildings, right? How much energy does it take to physically heat and cool the buildings where financial institutions are housed? (laughs) Because that's the alternative. That's the way we're solving those problems today. And crypto is the alternative to that, So when we say crypto is using all of this energy, is it sustainable? My question would be like, well, what are we comparing that to, right? They're solving a problem. They're going to replace these things in, in some way, more or less, you know, give or take. They're, they're, they're supplanting an existing solution. So how much energy are those taking? A lot of variables to consider. I'm an optimist. I believe that technology allows us to do things that were previously impossible and even unthinkable in many cases. And yeah, they present new challenges. But if we didn't believe these were a net positive, a net benefit, I don't think we'd keep using them the way we do. I'm very optimistic about the long-term prospects of crypto. And challenges like that are, are exactly that. They are challenges. They're things that are difficult right now that I think we can figure out moving forward.
0: Yeah, no, completely agree. And that's really good to kind of compare like, what does it look like today versus how could it look? And seeing like, it's not like all of a sudden, all this energy is being used up and it wasn't being used up elsewhere. It's just just deciding like what's going to help the most people and the market will decide and figure out what's most efficient and what's most helpful. So yeah, completely agree. So to do a final question, are you most bullish on Bitcoin or is there something else that you're eager and interested in watching. And I know a lot of like everything has a different usage, which I think actually is kind of hard to understand. Like even when I invested in Ethereum, I was kind of like, oh, it's it's for something very different. It's maybe not for just paying people. It's for contracts. And then, you know, each one maybe has like a different reason for it. But do you still think Bitcoin could come out on top or multiple coins for different reasons or what's your what's your viewpoint on that?
1: Um. I'll, I'll- there's a term in the cryptocurrency world, people will call themselves Bitcoin maximalists, where they'll say it's Bitcoin or it's nothing, right? This one implementation of blockchain technology, this one example of cryptocurrency is the one that's going to take over everything else. And I'm, I'm not exactly a Bitcoin maximalist, though I am big on Bitcoin. I think it has a few advantages. I think it's, it's got such a big name recognition. Here's this technology that's a layer of different technical elements that are so difficult to explain, to understand, and and to integrate into our lives and our existing systems, that simply having that wide name recognition is a huge advantage, right? If you ask the average person on the street, what is Bitcoin, what is cryptocurrency, can you tell me the difference? You're almost always going to get a very puzzled look. They barely know what those things are. They probably think they're identical. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that it is the only solution, the end-all, be-all. I think we probably will see some long-term winners. If, you, if we compare it to the internet, again, right? We talked about how cryptocurrency is today, maybe where the internet was in the mid-90s. And we talked about boom and bust cycles of exuberance followed by despair. We saw that with the internet. There was a 2000.com bubble that burst And so many tech companies went belly up, went out of business, value and money just evaporating into the ether. But flash forward a few years, and what do you have? You have a handful of tech companies who run our lives, Google, Mm -hmm. Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Microsoft, the ones who survived that or learned from those lessons are now incredibly valuable, incredibly useful, and make things possible that were distant fiction just a a couple decades earlier. I think we will likely see similar phenomenon with cryptocurrency, where likely Bitcoin, but likely a few others as well, will ultimately get integrated into so much of what we do in our lives, just in the background, making commerce possible, making communications streamlined and easy, uh, making record keeping and (laughs) and trust across individuals and organizations who might not otherwise know each other or interact, just making that simple, the same way a lot of these tech companies today make looking up previously unknown information absolutely simple, right? It's mundane to run a Google search for an obscure piece of information and to know it within 10 seconds. There's nothing we don't, we can't immediately look up. Mm-hmm. That would have been an incredible superpower just a couple decades ago. And, and I'm looking forward to the same kind of thing happening with cryptocurrency.
0: Agree. Yeah, that's an awesome place to leave off. So we have some amazing interviews coming up this week. Everyone has, is from a different background, different company, different perspective. So stay tuned. And Austin, how can people find you if they want to learn more, follow your very nice insights that you have on Twitter?
1: Twitter's a great place, at Austin M. Craig, M as in Michael, Austin M. Craig, and my website, austinmcraig.com.
0: Amazing. And stay tuned because Austin is working on our new podcast that's dropping in about a month and a half, two months or so. So it's going to be awesome, epic. We can't tell you too much about it now because it's that good. But Austin is the lead producer for it. And uh, yeah, stay tuned.
1: You're going to love it.
0: Yes, you will love it. (laughs) See y'all next time.